It was an unusual gathering at Toowoomba's Town Hall yesterday. Those who had survived the horrific floods of December and January mingled with writers to launch a book about their experiences. This book stands out from the raft of flood books that have been rushed into print in the past 12 months because these are flood stories in the words of those who lived through them. The stories were gathered and compiled by Toowoomba writer Brianda Cross, who explained to the audience the simple philosophy behind battered but not beaten. In the aftermath of World War II, the philosopher B.F. Skinner once wrote, We know not yet what man can do to man. But in the aftermath of the 2011 Toowoomba floods, I would like to turn that around and say, We know not yet what man can do for man. I delivered these words as an opening address to the book launch of Battered But Not Beaten on December the 16th, 2011. It was at the Toowoomba City Hall and marked the beginning of a race against time for the Christmas book season. I knew only too well that a book with 2011 in the title would have no retail value in 2012, so I had less than three weeks to sell 3,000 books. A book about floods, which I had to admit had no literary value, no named contributors and no pictures. For me at least the journey that had begun on the 10th of January 2011 was now drawing to a close. Of course for those who had lost loved ones and livelihood it would never be closed. But a year's worth of my own time, money and anguish had gone into those 3,000 copies and in some small way My final success to circulate the stories in the book was a small step towards the recognition of the distress the contributors had suffered. The Book That Stole 2011 Part 1 Where shall we begin, Your Majesty? I suggest you start at the beginning said the king gravely. Go on until the end, and then stop. I am only too happy to take the wise words of royalty, even when it is Lewis Carroll's King of Hearts. That's exactly where I shall start, although it does not begin with a flood. It begins with the drought. We'll all be ruined, said Hanrahan in accents most forlorn. Outside the church, ere mass began one frosty Sunday morn. By the end of 2010, the drought, partly known as La Ninja, had been a Queensland concern since 2005. Of course, like all droughts, that's a moot point, but as we approach the end of 2010, the word was out that we had less than 16% water in our local dam for a population of 120,000 people. It's looking crook, said Daniel Crook. Be dad it's crook, me lad, for never since the banks went broke has seasons been so bad. The fertile soil of the Lockyer Valley, known as a salad bowl of Australia. The ground everywhere was caked hard, and in some places there were deep ruts and cracks in what had formerly been beautifully rich organic loam. If we don't get three inches, man, or four, to break the drought, we'll all be ruined, said Hanrahan, before the year is out. But then, miraculously, on an ordinary hot sunny day in mid-December, it began to rain. Slowly, 
steadily, the drops first bounced off the rock-like earth, but then, just as slowly and steadily, it began to sink in. In God's good time down came the rain, and all the afternoon, on iron roof and window pane, it drummed a homely tune. And through the night it pattered still, and lightsome gladsome elves, on dripping spout and window sill, kept talking to themselves. Yes, it rained non-stop, occasionally with heavy bouts, and occasionally with massive thunderstorms. It pelted, pelted all day long, singing at its work, till every heart took up the song way out to Bacoburk. First the dams were full, then they were overflowing. Nearby Brisbane was experiencing much the same, and getting a little nervous as experience had shown that if the Brisbane River overflows, it takes in an enormous area of local residences. But being two and a half thousand feet above sea level, Toowoomba had little to worry about. We thought, and then it did. And every creek a banker ran, and dams filled over top. We'll all be ruined, said Hanrahan, if this rain doesn't stop. Hanrahan, written in 1919 by John O'Brien, was right. Thousands of people lost their lives and livelihood. Much of Toowoomba, the Lockyer Valley and Brisbane was ruined. The Flood At 1.30pm on January the 10th, and as if a gigantic fast load of water had spilt over the land, the heavens opened even more. No matter where you were in the city or suburbs, for 30 minutes we could not hear ourselves think, let alone speak. Then, just as it had begun, the rain stopped and the sun came out. I won't go into the devastation that 30 minutes left behind, that's the job of the book itself. But on a personal level, I had witnessed a virtual waterfall cascading down the boundary of my half-acre sloping block. And due to the vast pressure, as the water became blocked by a stalwart fence, a 40-foot stream of water rose to the sky. Even so, in a state of bewilderment like many others, I simply padded my way down to the front gate and stood looking at neighbours doing the same thing. We stood in awe as we saw that the rise in the road was providing another cascade of water that was sweeping dirt and debris before it, along with garbage cans, motor mowers, fences and even small sheds. Fortunately, we were one of the lucky ones that still had power and with the aid of television now witness the sights and scenes that had befallen the city and many surrounds. Homes, shops, hotels and churches could be seen 3 to 30 feet underwater. Far bigger, heavy debris was to be seen throughout the centre. Refrigerators were floating in the current alongside gas bottles, furniture and storage containers. Where had the water come from? We were atop a small mountain. Water flows down, doesn't it? Over the next few months, we were to question that basic science itself. It took 24 hours to establish that hundreds of domestic pets were lost. Farm animals drowned. 3,000 rotting chickens were found scattered in paddocks. And far worse, 
33 people dead and others missing. Then, of course, the work began. Clearing debris, sweeping, hosing down, cleaning. The jobs quickly became established into an order which seemed to end in the same results for everyone, a mound of mud outside the door. Thus, the mud army emerged. The Mud Army It seemed that as soon as you put your nose out of the door with your bucket and broom, without a word or even an exchange of name, a person would appear and help you clear or clean. Depending on the job in hand, it may be one or two, or indeed a small army if needed. They became the focus for the media all around the world, and I was a very small part of it. Strangely enough, we were now grateful for the rain, which was quietly insistent, but now its gentle showers helped to cleanse the landscape. And, miraculously, a few days later, the mud army disappeared. In their place was the Green Army. The Green Army The Green Army required a different type of person, a younger, stronger person. These folk scoured the outer suburbs, the grasslands, the bushes and hedgerows, the paddocks and further into the countryside and bush. This time they were collecting debris, the indisposable plastic bags, containers, kitchenware, clothing or rotting foodstuff that were scattered everywhere, including the tops of trees where the water had once swirled. And yes, decaying animal flesh was everywhere. The body of a small child was found a week later, trapped at the top of a tree. Days and weeks passed with more tragedies unfolding as the Green Army worked their way systematically over the local area of waterlogged land. Reluctantly, I had to admit to my years, this was physically beyond me. Then one day, just a week or so after the flood, I read a small article in the paper which changed everything. The Laundry Ladies of Murphy's Creek A small paragraph in the local paper told of a group of elderly ladies who had formed together a few days before when the mud army was still actively entrenched in the rigours of mud disposal. They had devised a system whereby dirty clothes would be peeled off at a specified gate so that the mud army volunteer could shower, change into clean clothes and get back into their cars and go home in relative clean comfort. And the next day, when repeating the performance, the previous day's clothes would be provided, washed and dried. What an incredibly simple and necessary additional arsenal against the flood. Elderly ladies. Well, no, I didn't think of myself quite in those terms, but the glimmer of the Eureka moment was forming. The Eureka moment. The laundry ladies had simply contributed by doing something they could do best, and it was a valuable contribution. I could do the same. I was a writer. I would write. However, whilst a good idea on the surface... What the hell could I say about a flood that had for the most part passed me by? That was only too evident by the stories beginning to surface in our local newspapers or on the radio. For every article about sorrow and loss would be another illustrating acts of bravery and kindness. 
Dozens, if not hundreds, were popping up every day. And that's where the Eureka Flash originated. It was because there were so many, we were not getting the full story. Sometimes no more than a headline and a column. The tail of a shirt. A young female volunteer went to help out a resident whose house was mud-bound. While digging, she got bitten by a snake. With everything in his house destroyed, the resident had only one recourse. He stripped off his shirt, ripped it up and bound it like a tourniquet so as to stop the venom travelling to her heart. It put an entirely new meaning to giving the shirt off his back. The Project I began to cut out and tabulate stories that seemed to have a particular resonance. Not only the big headlines of the day, but little anecdotes and illustrations of human nature. And then I began to contact the people myself, asking if I could meet with them, maybe record and ultimately print not just an account of what had happened, but their own words verbatim, not a word to be changed. A few said, no. A few said, not yet. A few said, yes. Then a few began to contact me. The book was on its way. How do I convey those next early few weeks? Armed with no more than a cheap $29 hand cassette recorder and a notepad and pen, remember, few mobile phones, no laptop, I began to go around the town and talk to people. If they were lucky, they would show me where the water levels had come inside their homes. If not, I would stand on a muddy, rutted piece of ground with an occasional wall showing where the house had been. Most of these were in the Lockyer Valley, two kilometres below the range. I would arrive like some lacklustre recording minstrel carrying coffee in a thermos and a cheese sandwich in a kid's lunchbox and spend the day with some luckless individual who may have no more than a roofless four walls to call home. Much of the time it was still raining and we would sit in my car as respite against the inclement weather. There would be handshakes on arrival and hugs on departure. Because for a brief moment I had been privileged to enter these people's lives when they were still bewildered and vulnerable. Each day I would go home like a rag doll, exhausted in body, yet replete in the strength and fortitude of being human. Yes, a strange phrase, but nearly everyone had been blessed with a good Samaritan in their lives at an hour of need. The process. While giving these accounts of other people's lives, it would be remiss for me not to give an account of my own. And this is a story that did not appear in the book, and which ten years later seems to have played back in my mind like a Dickensian penny dreadful, or a television series that was written so that for every three steps forward, the key character would fall two steps back. You see, a month after the flood, my husband, J.C., had begun to show signs of being unwell. This was not overly unusual, as quite a few ailments had begun to be experienced by locals. Mostly, they were low-key concerns like nausea, dizziness, weakness and other symptoms associated with waterborne diseases. At one stage, over 3,000 cases 
were known to have occurred, although most had only lasted a day or two. Of course, there were a number of cases that had been relegated into diagnosis of possible Ross River fever, a far more serious condition and even more that was still yet to be identified. This was where I was, now, with JC, who had been admitted into hospital mid-February, where he had remained in critical condition for six weeks, while the medics put him through test after test and pumped box loads of pills into him before they could even establish if he was suffering a viral or bacterial disease. Two vastly different medical conditions requiring vastly different treatments. Each night I would transfer notes and recordings into words on a digital page. This was no mean task as most times there would be wind buffering in the background or a child would need solace. There would be long drawn out pauses as moments of terror was revisited and outbursts of anger against officials who had apparently done the wrong thing. Cheap recorders have their limitations and words, sometimes phrases, would be lost, needing me to run and rerun the tape until almost worn. It was a surreal experience as I sat late at night listening to people as they recounted what it was like to face death or utter destruction. But many would end on a positive note when an hitherto unknown act of kindness was noted. Slowly the transcribed tapes began to mount and the book began to gain breadth because what merged was a frozen chunk of time, not a or even a day or week, but an encapsulation of events that would become the Toowoomba and Lockyer Valley 2011 flood, People, Places and Perceptions, a book that is now out of print, but will stay inside me forever. Brisbane floods. For those who fact-check, you will see that just two days after our Toowoomba Day of Horror, Brisbane too suffered a devastating loss. The local dam had been overflowing for days and pressure was mounting on the walls. In a decision that was and still is a political nightmare, water was released from the dam to relieve the force. This resulted in even more destruction as water levels along the Brisbane River rose to greater heights and floods equal to ours but lingering longer were widespread. Houses were swept away, more lives and livelihoods were lost and still the rain pelted down. The Premier came to our television screens daily, often windswept and sleepless, providing facts, news and words of encouragement. One speech in particular I never forgot. As we weep for what we have lost, as we grieve for families and friends, and we confront the challenges before us, I want you to remember we are Queenslanders. We're the people they breed tough north of the border. We're the ones they knock down and we get up again. This weather will break our hearts, but it will not break our will. We may be battered, but we are not beaten. As soon as I heard those words, I knew the title of my book. Part 2. The Printed Word Now we are going to leap forward well into the year, because it would seem that I lurched from one crisis and catastrophe to another. 
Once neatly printed on an A4, I had begun to collate the stories and put them into a ring binder. Then, partly as therapy as well as personal preference, I had asked JC to illustrate each story with a small illustration. Admittedly, he is not a great artist, but had managed to capture a little moment of magic from each account that sat very nicely below the title, providing a little respite from the otherwise overpowering number of pages beginning to accumulate. Round about June-July, I took them down to our local history librarian and asked her if there would be any interest in me running off a dozen or so copies for the local division. She flicked through the pages, delighted with what she saw, and asked if she could keep a copy. She wanted to show it to a few potentially interested people. This included members of our local council and the Cobb & Co. local museum. Insisting that this was only a work in progress, I agreed and went home to print off another copy for myself. A day later, I was contacted by Cobb & Co, who explained that they had only had chance to flick through the folder and would like a copy of their own. Delighted with the response, I agreed and while running off the pages, received a telephone call from our local newspaper, who also requested a copy. Another day passed and another telephone call this time from the City Council, with much the same message and request. So another hundred pages, a new binder, and away it went. A few days later, and a call came from the Golden Grail of Toowoomba events, the Carnival of Flower Office. I was invited to attend a meeting of all the other interested people, so another printed copy on my rapidly tiring cheap printer was needed. The upshot of the meeting was that the C of F, Carnival of Flowers, wanted to take full charge of the book and publish it under their own banner. But they wanted editorial rights to go with it. I insisted that it was still much a work in progress and that even at that stage there were still more stories coming in or in the process of my transcribing. This was fine but the C of F would take the initiative of what went into the end result. Now, when meeting up with the contributors, I had little to offer other than assurance that they would have the opportunity to tell their story with no fear of being misquoted or having the focus of their story redirected. This is what I had provided and I think why they had opened up to me while being sceptical of other journalists. I explained to the CFF that it was an all-or-nothing deal. After the usual argy-bargy, the CFF agreed. I was appointed a staff member in a local book editing and design organisation and instructed to work with her towards the end result, the publishing of the book to the tune of 5,000 copies, which had to be ready for sale by mid-September. I agreed. I went home and wrote to all my contributors, telling them the good news. The book would no longer be confined to the shelves of our local library, but would be available for 5,000 readers, with two copies in the National Archives for perpetuity. All I needed from them was for them to read what I had already written, then sign it as being a true record. Oh, how innocent I was of what lie ahead.
Crisis one. There are always a few people who can't meet deadlines, but of course, these were extraordinary circumstances. Not everyone had a computer to receive my emails. Others didn't have a letterbox for a hard copy because they didn't have a house. Some had given up on any hope of forging a new future locally and moved. Some were overcome with the idea of being in print and wanted to re-record their story from the beginning. Others wanted to tweak a few changes, and a couple of my contributors had disappeared completely, while another had committed suicide. Obtaining the necessary signed copy of story release was going to be more difficult than first envisaged. Crisis 2 by June-July, J.C. was at home convalescing and spending a good amount of time sketching picturesque inputs to the stories. The local paper was still headlining flood stories, but a few differing stories were beginning to emerge. The ugly word litigation was beginning to crop up in the news. When people or authorities help others at a time of crisis, not always the best results are achieved. A few victims were now suing their benefactors. The local state emergency service had put an embargo on any more stories of their support going to print, and many of my stories were now in jeopardy of being squashed due to political intervention. In fact, a couple of state emergency service contributors had gone on leave, then, becoming aware of the shitstorm some of their activities had created, decided to leave the organisation. I suddenly found myself in an extraordinary bind. While most of the stories were ready to roll, a few, perhaps in many ways the best, were still awaiting signature of release. This was adding to another insurmountable problem. The deadline issued by the C of F was getting nearer. Crisis 3 With the intention of speeding up this process of receiving confirmation letters, I decided to spend the next weekend travelling from one contributor to another to explain the situation and hopefully gain what I needed. By now, the contributors had doubled and there were many I had not even met face-to-face, simply telephone calls or emails. I was just about to leave for my next trip down the range to the Lockyer Valley when my friend from Rotary rang me and voiced surprise when I answered. His surprise was due to the fact that he had just received an email from me saying I had been kidnapped and was being held ransom somewhere outside of Cairo by white traders. I would be released if he would pay $200 to a Swiss bank account. What? Within minutes, my phone was running hot. Others had received the same message. My email account had been hacked. When I tried to access my emails, I found them to be blocked, so none of my contributors stored on that account were accessible. Back then, ransomware was not as prevalent as it is now, so it first took me a while to understand what had happened, then decide what to do about it. My first job was to write an email explaining the situation and send it to as many addresses I could remember. The next was to consult with Google and Wiki, which provided absolutely no help whatsoever. I was on my own. Cutting to the chase, I can only say it was, at that point, the worst day of my life. I did not know then that an even worse one would loom on the horizon. 
A few cups of coffee later, telephone calls and retrievals of bits of paper with notes and addresses scattered throughout, and by evening I was finally able to reconstruct what I thought was my list of contributors. I had to open another email account and write a letter of explanation. Then the replies began to roll in. Some commiserating, others with suggestions of computer protection, and others asking me what it had been like to have been kidnapped by white slavers. Crisis 4 The Carnival of Flowers office had allotted a book designer to work with me. I didn't know such people existed, but I swear while this lady who had been assigned the job did her best, she had never read a book in her life. To voice an obvious pun, we were never on the same page. First up, she had told me that quaint, though JC's drawings were, they were not intense enough to be relegated to a 5,000 run. They would need to be overdrawn by a professional artist using special paper and ink. The C of F said they would arrange an artist and quoted me a price. It was exorbitant. The system thus far had been that having checked through grammar, spell checks and set up the specified fonts and margins, I had provided my finished files in numbered and named chapters in Word, which she then, that's to say the designer, then converted into a program called InDesign. Second, and this was weird, she would only allow me to view copies of the draft in a PDF format, which was not enabled for edits. So I would need set up a file with an archaic form of editing such as page two, third line down, fifth word in, and then whatever the problem was. Page two, 19th word down, 10th word in, and so on. And for some extraordinary reason, there were now an enormous amount of misspells and typos. The files went backwards and forwards. Draft one, draft two, up to draft five. Fortunately, I had a good friend who had once been a book editor who helped me proofread, but it was a long and arduous process which seemed to be getting worse rather than better. However, all this was becoming secondary to the fact that the deadline had been reached and the book not ready for print. So the Carnival of Flowers office dropped me. The reason given was reasonable. They had undertaken the endeavour in order to make money by selling the book at the Flower Festival in the third week of September, after which the book would have no further value to them. I was appalled. I had not thought of the venture in terms of profit, but more as a sort of historical community exorcism of a devastating event. Either way, they no longer wanted me or my book. The best I could now achieve was to be given the files already prepared. Which brings me to the next crisis. Crisis 5. InDesign versus Soda PDF. Once the files were sent to me electronically, I discovered to my horror they were still encrypted in the InDesign format. Now, at the time, this was a $3,000 program, and I had to find a way to convert this specialized PDF format into a program I could work with, which back then was mostly Word, OpenOffice, or even rich text format. 
There were a few software programs that supposedly opened up PDFs, and I needed to learn about them very fast. It is a known fact that desperation will encourage the body to prepare vast surges of adrenaline in a fight-or-flight formula. It is the inner force that allows men to lift cars from accident victims or fight a bear or move a mountain. I turned to my editor friend for advice, but he simply shook his head and said that no matter what software I used, it would be no match for InDesign. With nothing to lose, I had the temerity to approach a company called Soda and tell them that their $39 program that supposedly opened all PDFs and marketed as such did not work. Through their 1800 help and support contact number, I kept complaining until I eventually spoke to the managing director, who was somewhere in China. He was extremely sympathetic to my tale of woe and said to send the files to him personally and he would use his high-tech skills to work out the problem. Then he asked me what program I was converting from and everything went quiet. Soda at $39 was up against InDesign at $3,000. This was worse odds than David and Goliath. Thankfully, this young man saw this as a promotional opportunity. If they could overcome my problem, their slogan, opens up all PDFs, would hold good. And like little David, little Soda overcame the big ogre in design. But once I had the files, I was even more horrified at the way the chapters had been set out. Anyone typing manuscripts would have heard of widows and orphans, a situation where sometimes only one word or two finishes up at the top of an otherwise empty page. My book had an enormous amount of widows and orphans. In the 180-page manuscript, at least 40 of the pages were blank, all but for one or two words. I tidied them up as best I could, frustrated at the thought that if only I had more time, I could do a far better job. But I was almost down to counting hours before the manuscript had to be at the printer's. But worse was to come. Crisis 6 I finally reached an acceptable state and sent an electronic copy over to my friend for a final proofreading. Within the hour, an email came back full of woe. Quote, how could we have let so many typos go through? What? One thing I prided myself on was good, competent typing skills. But as I began an in-depth read, I saw he was right. In the transference between one software program and another, a peculiar glitch had occurred. It could not transfer the letter L. Now think about it. It was a book about a flood, but every flood word came out food. It was the stuff of funny stories. Hilarious, but I was in no mood to see the humour. I rang the managing director of Soda Software and almost sobbed my plight into the phone. God knows what time it was his end. But he listened carefully and told me to send the new version of the manuscript through to him 
via Dropbox. Almost immediately came back his response. There was no problem to be seen, his end. It only became apparent on my laptop, an Android. I then sent a copy to my editor friend. He had a Mac. It was apparent on his too. Once again, the MD proceeded to take on my problem personally. He worked with me for a day and a night with electronic copies going back and forth across the world until perseverance paid off. Success. At 3 a.m., when my spirit was at the lowest ebb, I managed to open a file copy where the word flood abounded and the word food only occurred where I had wanted it. Success at that level, yes, but we had a long way to go, and the spiral continued downwards. Another crisis was waiting in the wings. Crisis 7 I had decided to finance the costs of printing myself and work out a rough financial plan. The economy of scale commanded that if we printed 2,500 books and sold them all, I could get my money back. For an independent publisher and unknown writer, (laughs) that was a huge expectation. But any number less than that left me in debt. At the same time, I knew that any book that had a 2011 catastrophe as focus would barely raise an eyelid in 2012. So the forthcoming gift-giving Christmas was like a rag to a bull. In fact, a good many photographers and writers had jumped on that particular bandwagon and was bringing out boutique or coffee table books. And of course, some of the photographs were stupendous, as was the price of the books. This only showed in deep contrast how horrendous my finished article was looking from a design perspective. But I did feel confident about the content, which is all I had to encourage me to carry on. Of course, once the electronic manuscript was at the publisher, I waited petrified for the first copy to roll from the press and proofread it from cover to cover. It was fine. Just 2,499 to go. I now had time to do a little nifty wheeling and dealing. I had already done some research and found that if the book came out under the umbrella of our local writers club, it would be exempt from certain extra tax levies, reducing the margin between income and expenditure. So our treasurer opened up a special bank account to which I donated a specified sum of money, which rated in the thousands. Printing invoice would then be covered by my writer's group, which of course was for the same amount, and all income would then come back to me. We are about to come up with crisis eight. One of the reasons for me imposing a deadline was that a big day was coming up within the week when our premier was to appear locally in our largest state school hall. The idea being to have a bumper morning tea with thanks going to various local heroes involved in the aftermath of the flood, which were now almost a year gone. I arranged with her secretary that I would present the premiere with the first copy of the book, which would, of course, gain much-needed publicity and promotion and act as a launch for the book. What could go wrong? 
plenty. Crisis 9. The Premier's Visit The printers were pulling all the stops out to print the book within the 48 hours or so allotted them. I was very grateful. But just prior to them printing the last page, I had an interesting telephone call from the managing director. Having had chance to only flick through the book, he had been impressed with some of the stories and now realised some of the issues involved regarding the finances and then asked me what plans I had for any profits the book may make. I was dumbfounded. It had never occurred to me that such a thing could happen. I had just hoped that I would not be out of pocket too much. He then said that if a charity was nominated for any profits, however small, that the printery could reduce some of the charges and even print a few extra copies as their own community gesture. While it did put an extra pressure on the number of books to be sold, it did mean that there was more chance that I would be thoroughly reimbursed. And yes, a small profit may be made. All I needed to do was to put in a line or so on the front page nominating where such profits would go. I couldn't wait to get off the phone and then back on, this time to ring my editor friend who was also president of one of our Rotary Clubs. His organisation had already begun a fund to rebuild the community hall that had been swept away down at the Lockyer Valley. He was delighted at the idea of this being a recipient of any profits, even when warned that we may just be talking a few dollars. He was simply happy with the interest and support, however small. Within the hour, an additional line was added to the front page saying that any monies accrued would be donated to the Rotary Disaster Fund. By that evening... 3,000 copies of my book was waiting at the warehouse in full readiness to be picked up the following morning, whisked along to the Premier's morning tea in two days' time, and sales could begin. But wait, where is the crisis? Yes, it's coming. Crisis 10. Early the next morning, I rang the treasurer of my writer's group and explained that the books were ready and waiting for her to send the required invoice sum to the printers who would then call me to pick them up. She grumbled that things were not done like that in her day. You received the goods, then sometime that month the invoice would arrive and you would pay it. I gently pushed that these were unusual circumstances and she said she would get on to it. Late that afternoon, JC and I went out to the printers to pick up the books, only to be told that as no money had yet been forthcoming, they could not release the book. I rang the treasurer what was going on. Again grumbling, she said she had done what she had been asked. She had paid the invoice. She had written out a cheque and posted it. Back then, banks required three days before a cheque could be cleared. And until that was done, the books could not be moved. Then JC had a brilliant idea. I could print off the contents sheet and dedication from my own files on my trusty old printer. Then, with simply one sample copy of the cover, I could present it to the premiere as if it was a complete book. 
Of course, she would have to be warned beforehand that I was going to hand her a fake copy and we would have no books to sell at that time, but we would still get some promotional value from the morning tea and subsequent TV and newspaper media outlets. All of which was conveyed by a frantic telephone call to her secretary who thought it a huge joke. She said the Premier was in need of a little mirth and would go along with the deception. I still didn't see the funny side of it but thanked her gratefully. I was so near victory and yet so far. By now I was almost out of control. Taking an enormous further leap of faith, the next morning JC and I went to the bank and took out the required sum in cash. Then while JC went to the printer, I went to the morning tea with the fake book. I sat in the front row and sat frozen through the formal proceedings. The Premier looked tired. When given the nod to stand and say my few words and hand over the rather thin-looking book, I was able to quote her little speech that had been given in the midst of such horror. A real smile lit up on her face, and the audience applauded their approval. Whilst retiring to the tea and scones, I was able to thank the Premier more personally and explain briefly what had happened, and assured her that as soon as I had my hands on the real book, I would deliver it to her office. It was at that precise moment that in the guise of the cavalry, J.C. arrived with our station wagon full of books wrapped in batches of ten. We sold a good number of them at cost price. We were on our way. I would like to say that all our troubles were behind us. They weren't. There were many more to come but they were dealing with the distribution of the book to the bookstores, which were now clamouring for copies. In fact, we sold all 2,500 within a few weeks, a record as yet still unmatched by an independent, I believe, and the printer managed to get another 1,000 out before 2011 turned into 2012. We were able to donate a sizable sum of money to the Lockyer Valley building project and for a very brief moment I was quite the star. Was it all worth it? I would love to say yes, but to be honest I count every grey hair on my head having been born throughout that nightmare. But I often think back to those laundry ladies of Bluestone Drive in their way, their contribution was just as valid as mine, more so in some ways, and that only took a couple of weeks out of their lives, <laughs> whereas mine took a year, which is why I call this the book that stole my year, 2011. This has been written and narrated by Brianda Cross. For more information about Battered But Not Beaten, please go to fastfictionpodcasts.com. Thank you.